James chapter 1. James is a fascinating book for many reasons. Um, Many people have debated over what James is really all about, whether or not there's really even any structure at all to James, or whether it's not just this James is just kind of going after these readers over various issues. And, you know, certainly he has some wisdom to deliver to them, but it's just a lot of people have suggested that it's not really connected ideas, uh, really, that, that James really doesn't really have a cohesive, real heart-driven, one-focused principle uh, that he's necessarily trying to say. Well, needless to say, I, I pretty much very strongly disagree with that uh, approach to this book that we're going to look at tonight. In fact, there's a very poignant um, fact that we need to consider in James that I want to set in front of us tonight to consider. And In fact, it's something that we've heard before, but I want to show you the irony, in a sense, of this statement. Did I do that, Darby, or did you do that? You did. Okay, I think this works. All right. We had a little technical difficulty earlier, so you have to bear with me here. I can't see what's behind me on the screen, so we're going to try to make it work. But when you see this statement, finding joy in trials, now wait a second. How do you find joy when the diagnosis comes in? How do you find joy when you lose your job? How do you find joy when your family is falling apart? How do you find joy when you see the suffering and evil that's in the world? How do you find joy when you can see economies slipping and the world falling apart? How do you find joy when natural disasters occur and um, on and on and on the list goes? How do you find joy? I mean, is that some sort of morbid fascination that we as Christians are called to have in the midst of a world of suffering and evil? Is that what we're called to? Is that what it means to find joy amidst all the hardships and all the suffering and all the challenges? Well, What's interesting is James, I believe, is, is writing this letter to remind believers of his day to have joy in their trials. They certainly had many obstacles to their faith, much like we do today. In fact, maybe you could even make the case that even maybe more so, they had greater, at least outward pressures of physical persecution and trials and obstacles that come. But you know what's interesting is James is not even addressing necessarily any sort of physical persecution that perhaps these believers were facing, but instead a different kind of trial, a different kind of test that they needed to, to basically be able to pass the test, to go through a test in order to exhibit the genuineness of their faith. The question is, is how well were these believers facing their trials and were they really employing the principle that James, I think, is driving home to them that they must count it joy when they face trials? And how is that possible? Well, when you consider this, just by way of introduction, look at what James says in James 1, verse 2, as we start our study tonight in the book of James. As you look at verse 2, you see this right out of the gate, The focus that he has right after he introduces himself and addresses his audience, he gets right to the heart of the matter. And I think this is the main point. Certainly there's much more that's going to support this, but here's what James says right out of the gate. Here we go. He hits the ground running. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Well, what kind of trials are these? He only defines them here as trials of various kinds testings of various kinds. So what kind of testings is he talking about? In fact, what's interesting too is not only does he say, you know, that these are just various kinds of trials that you're going to face, but not a matter of if you face them, but when you do, right? 
I mean, you've heard the, the famous statement, again, it's that if you're not currently going through a trial, you're about to be in one. How many of you heard that statement? I'm sure every single person in here has probably heard that. If you're not presently in a trial, you're going into one. And in fact, guys, I agree with that, but I think it actually is more heightened than that. I think it's a matter of the fact that we need to actually shift our thinking to be aware of what James is really hitting at here is that sometimes trials and testing aren't just in the big diagnosis of disease or the atrocities of natural disasters. I don't think that those are the kind of trials or testings of faith that James necessarily has in mind. Certainly, it would encompass that. But sometimes we think too largely, instead of thinking about the trials and testing of our faith faith that happen every moment that we breathe. Every second that you have an opportunity to do something or not do something is either a chance to glorify God or not. Count it all joy when you're tested to see whether or not you will glorify God or not in everything. In fact, let me show you, because again, James is pointing out the fact, the certainty of trials in verse 2 that we see. It's not if, it's when you do. And it's various kinds of trials that you're going to face. So the certainty of trials, the the guarantee that all of us are going to be tested in some way regarding our faith. In fact, that's what he says in verse 3. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith. See, the trials, the idea of trials is the testing of your faith to see the proven genuineness of what's within you. Is your faith substantiated by a divine wisdom that's been planted in you through the mercies and the grace of God? So we have the certainty of trials, and we know that we're all going to have this testedness of our faith. But here's the question, because in the same chapter, James not only says, hey, it's important that you know that when you face test, this is something good to test the genuineness of your faith, but what's the difference between testing and temptations? Because I think that when you understand this at the outset and what James is doing, he is going to basically introduce this idea right here, but the whole rest of the book basically details the ways in which the believers that he's addressing had been facing many different kinds of testing of their faith. And can I tell you something? They had been failing. They'd been failing at passing these tests in a way that would correspond to divine wisdom that came from above. And so the imperative that we find here is that James is telling these individuals that they need to go through these tests and, and, and basically do it to prove the genuineness of their faith and the authenticity of their faith. And this is so vital to understand. But yet, James is going to make very clear there's a difference between that kind of testing of your faith and a temptation that you may succumb to. The temptation to do something other than glorify God. In a test, you have either an option to glorify God or to give in to your own sinful desire. Well, what do you mean, Cooper? Well, let's look at verse 12. Let me show you what I mean. Because here we see the same idea that he's already said in the first few verses. See, here he says, though, verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So on the one hand, you have those who are steadfast through a test, and they do so unto the glory of God. But here's the other option. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted. See, here's a different word. When you're tempted, you're not allowed to say, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. 
Okay, so what's the difference then? On the one hand, you have someone who is tested and proves the genuineness of his faith. On the other hand, you have somebody who's being tempted to sin, and they're perhaps blaming God. What's the difference between a a testing of your faith and a temptation of your faith? Well, let me just simply explain it this way. What's the difference? A temptation is something that, again, would lure you and entice you toward things that don't bring God glory. In other words, when you're tempted, you need to realize what's going on here. God is not setting things in front of you and objects and opportunities in front of you for you to follow your own way and follow your own desires in accordance with your own wisdom, follow your own circumstances, respond by your own emotions, by your own wisdom. A temptation is always the flirtation that we have to not walk in accordance with God's will, but instead walk in accordance with our own desires. See, this is provoked from within us, not from God. God is not to blame for us choosing to follow our way and not to align ourselves to what would actually bring glory to God in any circumstance we face. And so the testing of our faith, the the temptations that we have, look at what James attributes this to. Verse 14, realize the source of when you're tempted, where it comes from. But each person is tempted, not from God, he says, remember, But when he is lured and enticed by what? What does it say? His own desire. Then, okay, let's just keep going here. Then when desire is conceived, what a graphic image here, right? When desire conceives in you, guess what? When that thing is given birth to, when you bear that thing out, it gives birth to sin. When you follow desires, and you go your own way, decide to do it your way, it gives birth to what's called sin. You guys have heard of that term before? That's right. That's where it comes from. Your own desire leading you to take any opportunity that's in front of you to do what you want to do rather than what glorifies God. That temptation comes from within you. And sin, when it's fully grown, gives, it's, it's a deformed creature that we give birth to. It's a corruptible thing, and ultimately it leads to an unnatural, saddened end which is death. Creatures following their own desire, hence giving birth to sin, that is not walking in conformity with what would bring God glory, but instead pursuing your own natural wisdom and your own desires. We know where that leads. The wages of sin is death. What we earn, what we deserve by following our own wisdom, following our own counsel, by by living through life and every opportunity that we have and responding in our own flesh, Instead of receiving divine wisdom and the gospel and everything else that's been rooted in us through prayer and all these things that James is going to say that these believers have been neglecting is so vital to the Christian faith. In fact, I'm convinced of this, that trials aren't, and these these testings aren't these necessarily big diagnoses and massive calamities, but they're perhaps even far more simple. And let me show you what I mean. Because I think that In everything that we have the opportunity either to give God glory or to follow our own desires. Everything is is, is chopped up to those two categories. James' readers had not been responding to the test of their faith appropriately. Well, what do you mean? Well, first and foremost, they had been blaming God. Verse 13 of chapter 1. The second thing that they see in the testing of their faith, they had untamed tongues. 
Chapter 2, they were showing partiality. That is, that they were treating some as better than others, and certainly maybe the, the people that, that could give something in return to them, they were showing greater honor to and attention to, and other people were being neglected in the midst of their assemblies. That was a test of their faith that they were failing. They had spiritual arrogance and religious hypocrisy in chapter 3, verse 1. People that, again, and just get the picture of this. These people that James was writing to, these people were thinking that they were, had so arrived that they were able to be teachers, that they really had something to tell other people about what it meant to be spiritual. In fact, James said, look, I'm warning you, not many of you, not many of you should be teachers. It's a stricter judgment. In fact, we're going to see that these people that thought they had something to say, something to say should have probably kept their mouths shut. Because they didn't really understand and they weren't exhibiting uh, the true faith and genuine faith that should have been coming out. They're religious hypocrites. Not only that, but we see, uh, we see other places the fact that they had quarrels, fights, disagreements with one another, disorders in relationships. We see again selfish ambition. They, they were kind of you know, selfishly uh, motivated out of their own desires and out of their own uh, maybe desire to even view, be viewed as the most spiritual. <laughs> but even that kind of consumed them in such a way that was manifesting itself in, in, a, in a very sinful way. Harsh judgments toward others. I mean, they were, they were basically coming after people that weren't aligning to certainly outward forms of of, of things and people weren't giving and taking and, and you had these harsh judgments that people were just dropping heavy accusations against people because they weren't conforming to higher levels of even holiness and so there was harsh judgment being dished out. It's interesting here uh, also James says again they were presuming on the Lord not seeking the Lord's will or seeking his will with the wrong motives. All of these were problems. Also not only that, but they were failing to repent or see the seriousness of their sin as they ought. They were kind of just going along, and, and they were just okay with the state that they were in. And instead of walking in accordance with wisdom that comes from above, these individuals, that, that these believers, professing believers that James was addressing, were failing even to repent of, of sins in their life as they ought. They were failing to keep their word. They were saying, oh, yeah, we'll be there. We'll help you out. And then, oh, yeah, what was that thing we were supposed to be at? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they were, they were given like a, a yes to some people, you know, yeah, yeah, we'll be there. And then, no, yeah, that actually never happened. Also, just one final thing. There's many more things I could put up here. But, again, this is just sort of an overview. They're failing to restore sinning brothers as they ought. Again, they were sort of allowing people just to go and, and uh, they, were, they were focusing on maybe secondary issues or whatever it might be. But yet... You know, we see in 518 to 20 the fact that they, they weren't really caring for and seeing sinners restored to faithfulness in the gospel. I mean, this is just a token. I just, this is just an example. You go home and read James, and, and you'll just see that I barely scratched the surface on things and testings of these believers' faith. But what you see here is there's no necessarily diagnosis of cancer on here. There's no, hey, you know, you're being tested in the sense of outward persecution. Hey, you know, there's, there's not these things that are going on. Instead, all of these things are, that James is addressing are these sinful motives, these ambitions that aren't 
that, that are being within the hearts of these believers that are basically being manifested in all these sort of hypocritical ways in which the church was failing to employ genuine faith toward one another as they ought. They were failing to meet the test. And so James has a pretty poignant solution that he actually gives, I think, at the outset of the letter, back where we were in chapter 1. In fact, he's giving these believers warnings. I'm going to call them reminders, but you could indeed say three warnings, three reminders that will help us live into the glory of God. In all those circumstances that we face to learn that in every opportunity that you have, no matter how small, no matter how seemingly insignificant, we can learn to be rooted in the things that James roots us in in order to rightly respond when our faith is tested in any way. How are we going to respond? Well, the first thing I want to draw our attention to is the need for endurance. The need for endurance. If you're still in chapter 1, let's go back to verses 2 to 4. James 1, 2 to 4. And listen to this imperative. Every time your faith is tested, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. All the different kinds of trials, all the different opportunities, all the different kinds of testing of your faith. Why should we count it joy? Why should we count it joy when somebody uses their tongue or gossips or slanders us? Why should we count it joy when any of those circumstances come into our lives and people don't treat us the way we'd like to be treated? Why should we count it joy whenever there's an opportunity to glorify God? Well, I kind of gave the answer, right? Because the testing your faith in any opportunity you have to respond in accordance with God's character is something to be joyful about. Well, verse 3, you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. Verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete Lacking in nothing. So you tell me, what is the purpose of counting it joy in trials? In every opportunity that God lays in front of you by his providence. To be tested in your faith, to see whether you're going to glorify God or not. What's it produce? What's the end result and why should you count it joy? What does it say? It produces ultimately completeness, maturity, lacking in nothingness. (laughs) How many of you guys would desire that? Would you like to lack in nothing? Would you like to be complete? Would you like to be mature? Then learn to glorify God with every opportunity that's in front of you. There's a need for endurance and then every little thing. Sometimes you wonder why people can go into those larger obstacles of their life, those larger trials, and do so to sort of shame all the rest of us that aren't going through nearly what our fellow believers are struggling through. And their faith is an exhibition of great joy in their trials and the glory given to God. But yet we can look at that and praise God. But at the same time, we can turn around and see somebody who has attested their faith to respond to talk about or to not talk about an individual in a way that wouldn't bring glory to God. And they fail that test miserably. See, the desire that God has in front of you is that everything that you face, every single thing that you face, 
is an opportunity for us to be more conformed to the character and will of God. And as you do that, there's a quality of your character that not only in the, time, in, the, in the things that you say, but in the moments of your day, what you devote yourself to do and how you spend the, 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 the time that the Lord has granted you as long as you breathe on this earth and the body that God has given you. That even every decision to spend moments of your time to either devote yourself to be rooted in the faith as you ought and to glorify God is really a test of your faith. That it's worked out, that the, that the ability, you, you guys have always heard it, that the ability that to, to arrive at the larger trials and to be able to glorify God in those kind of circumstances is built through all the little things, the little bits of faithfulness, the opportunities to, in your integrity, demonstrate the joy of your salvation and the desire to be rooted and grounded in the Lord's will as you ought. And the effect and the steadfastness, as you steadfastly keep seeking after all the ways that you can give God glory in every opportunity you face, the steadfastness, when it has its effect, when you just discipline yourself and you pursue these things, the idea is completeness or not lacking in anything. I always tell my college students here, what's the definition of maturity? Don't, don't shame me now. What is it? Yes. Awareness. You guys all knew that, right? That's right. If you're in my college ministry, they, they hear me say that all the time. Maturity is about awareness. Maturity of our faith, guys, is, is meaning that you are aware in the opportunities of, of what brings God glory. And so as you're maturing in your faith, as you're overcoming obstacles, as you're going through trials and testing, maturity, completeness, lacking nothing, means that you're aware of how to respond to the glory of God in circumstances. And yet the testing of your faith and the trials, how you've tested him o'er and o'er as the great hymn goes. Jesus is found faithful. Your faith is found true. God receives glory because you respond as somebody who has been altered by the powerful work of the gospel. There's completeness, there's endurance that comes through employing faithfulness to this gospel that brings about a maturity and a greater awareness of how we ought to respond in circumstances. In fact, look at the implications he gives in verse 12. He says there, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under testing or trial, because what's the ultimate outcome of your faith, guys? What is it? When he has stood the test, when you've been found faithful, you'll receive what? The crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. As the exhibition of your faith is as you love God, you're learning how to respond in every opportunity in a way that you would demonstrate that you love God. There's an importance of steadfastness and, and, and learning not to look at, oh man, okay, when I face these big trials, I need to respond this way. But instead of thinking of the big factors, guys, look at what James, I think, has in mind to these readers is that every opportunity that you have has a need for endurance, for you to be an endurance runner through every circumstance of every moment of your day, to be opting into the glory of God and the need for that steadfastly to be complete so that you'll be more and more aware, more and more complete, more and more assured of your faith being rooted. And as it's being tested, you're exhibiting that. 
and every opportunity and circumstance that's around you. It's vital. But there's not only the need for endurance, but I think there's a second factor that James is going to connect us to. We've already touched on it a little bit because James sees fit and, and needs to remind us of the danger of sin. Not only the need for endurance, but the danger of sin, right? As we've already seen in verse 14, the whole idea that each person is tempted, though, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Again, I want to reconnect us to this, even though we briefly touched on it. The awareness, is, the, 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 the awareness that we need to have about this is that the danger of sin is always there. You either have an opportunity to follow your own desires, to do what you would rather do, than to conform yourself to the will of God. Everything is a test for that. But again, we can think back to our own temptations and, and when we're lured astray that we know again when we should maybe devote ourselves or maybe not respond the way that we ought or things like that. That when we choose to respond in ways or when we choose to devote ourselves in ways that don't conform to what would really form Christ in us and a greater devotion to the gospel, we often opt to follow our own desires. But yet we justify those things, don't we? Oh, this is not inherently sinful. We have to be careful with that, though, don't we? Because basically what James says here is anything of following after your own desires that aren't in conformity to the will of God, what, what's, what comes from that? What, what's birthed from that conception? Sin. In fact, he's, he's going to point out all the other places. I mean, you could even consider um, the fact that later on he's going to tell these Readers in chapter 4 and chapter 3 that, again, these people really, for all that that could be said about their outward spirituality and their outward ability to teach others and be right and have a lot of knowledge and uh, desire to be viewed as teachers and those that had really come to a great awareness and understanding of things of God and they really appeared to be spiritual. What's even interesting is that James constantly says that these individuals, his readers, are dominated by selfish ambition. But yet the outward forms, they looked really religious. They were following their own desires, even in their spirituality, which is kind of scary to think about, right, in our context. Following after our own desires and following after our own selfish ambitions, instead of really considering what it is to give God glory in the circumstances of our life. There's a danger of sin and following after what we would rather do rather than be controlled and guided by the Spirit of God through the grace of God, according to his word. Instead, we follow after our own wisdom and our own desires. Giving birth to sin and all the relationships and circumstances of our life become disarray in every vile practice, as James says later on, erupts from that. So regardless of what we think we are spiritually, when we look at the, the principle that's really driving us, are we really being led by our own desires or are we being controlled by a different principle? I mean, let's stop playing the game because that's what James is calling them out on. And he's saying, look, you religious people, be wretched and mourn and weep. Repent as you ought. But James wasn't necessarily even confident that they were even going to do that, which is kind of scary in chapter 4. But guys, we have to be reminded of the danger of sin, the need for endurance. If you're a believer, praise God for the victories. But again, We need to keep pressing on. 
to learn how to give God greater and greater glory so that it produces its maturity, all the while being aware of the dangers of sin and us being tempted, even in our religious pursuits, to actually end up at our own desires and not really accomplish the purpose of doctrine, the purpose of the truth, which is to cultivate character in you that corresponds with that truth. The next point, very quickly, it's not only the the need for endurance, the danger of sin, but I think this really gets at the heart. Well, if if there's a need for endurance, and if there's the danger of sin, what is it then that we really need? Well, if you're still in chapter one, go to verse five, because I believe James spells it out for us. Because what what I want to point out to you before we actually look at verse five, what kind of wisdom is this? Is this a wisdom that says basically like, man, I'm I'm pretty smart. I mean, I've I figured out how to live life. Is it a wisdom that says basically, yeah, I mean, I'm I've got this thing down, and this wisdom really it's it's what I have, and man, I wish other people were as wise and smart as me. Is that the wisdom that James is talking about, or is it a different kind of wisdom? that believers are are, are imperative that believers understand the source of this wisdom and whether or not it begins with you or somewhere else. And I think James actually makes the case very clearly where it comes from. In fact, it relates to this first point here in verse five. Notice this, if any of you lacks wisdom, if that is, if any of you lacks the ability and awareness of how you ought to respond in any opportunity that's in front of you, have you guys ever been there where you don't know how to respond in a circumstance or an opportunity, and maybe you responded in the bad way. I'm raising my hand. I've been there. That's me. If any of you lacks wisdom, I think James is basically making implications here, that's all of us. We all lack wisdom. We all lack awareness of how we should respond to the glory of God as we ought. So where are we going to go in order to, to think rightly? about how to respond in the trials that we ought. What's the first thing that James says we should do? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him do what? Ask God. If you lack wisdom, do you pray as you ought? That's a pretty simple connection, right? If you lack wisdom, if you're, if you're lacking the opportunities to be able to respond in the trials and the testing of your faith and any opportunity that's in front of you, Have you asked God as you ought? Because again, consider what James says here. I mean, sometimes we wallow around going, I wish I knew what I should do in this circumstance. And then we kind of go around and we like to hear people talk and give us suggestions. But yet the one thing we don't do is we don't ask God. In fact, we ask God and we don't ask God as we ought and and so we, we don't receive but, but consider this, the fact that God is willing to give generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. There's a contingency here, though, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. <laughs> For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. In other words, guys, let me say this, that your prayer should be rooted in faith. In other words, you shouldn't just mouth words that you know are right to say and not actually actually desire to respond in a way that would glorify God. 
Because sometimes we do that, right? We like to ask the right things. We like to say the right words. But then when it comes down to it, we don't necessarily like to actually do what would be necessary in order to see that prayer request fulfilled. We often, sometimes, again, and that's where James says again, that, that those of you that are praying are praying with the wrong motives, right? In chapter 4. To spend it on your own pleasure. That is, you know, you're willing to, to say the right things, but you're actually, your motives are still that you, you really want what you desire. That's scary. In fact, let's just go look at that real quick. Go to James chapter 4. Because again, I think he's coming back to that issue of prayerlessness or praying with the wrong motives right here. In verse 2, he's telling him, you desire and do not have in chapter 4, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You don't know how you should respond in these circumstances because you're not even asking God for wisdom that rests outside of you in order to be able to respond to this as you ought. You're trusting in your own desires to trust from your own condition, from your own heart, that you're actually going to respond appropriately. Yeah, good luck with that. How's that gotten you so far in life? How's that fared you? Because anytime I know that I follow my own desires and respond according to what's best for Cooper... Nothing really ever good came from that, <laughs> ever. You, have, you do not have because you do not ask. Verse 3, you ask. Look at this. You ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I don't know. Maybe what's going on here is that, that people were praying even maybe the right things, but yet inwardly their desires weren't really there. And so their, their faith wasn't really being rooted in actually both praying the right things, and having their hearts and their desires not for their own appetites to be gratified and not for themselves to be glorified, but to God to be truly be glorified and them to be conformed to the will of God. I mean, it's just amazing to me that sometimes we can just pass over this and think, oh, well, that's not us, but let's think about this really. I mean, if we sought the divine source of wisdom that rests outside of us, again, the whole principle here is the fact that, look, You need to tap into wisdom. You need wisdom, but here's the deal. It's not found in you. It's found above. It's found from God. It's not found as you follow your own desires and you respond in accordance with your own making. And in fact, what's interesting here is that when James is even exposing either prayerlessness or praying with wrong motives, the next verse includes maybe one of the strongest rebukes in all of Scripture in verse 4. He says, you adulterous people. Wow. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That is, why are you keeping up the charade of maybe even having an outward sign of religion, but inwardly your passions are still controlling you. You're still following after your own desires. Because again, the result of your life really is is resulting in sin. You're not actually responding in a way that glorifies God. So number one, let's trace this problem back. You're not actually tapping into the wisdom that comes from God because you're controlled by your own selfish ambitions and not from divine wisdom. You adulterous people. You're professing your love and your faithfulness to God 
But in your desires, you're going out with prostitutes. You're joining yourself to sinful desires and you aren't really conforming yourself to the foundation of your faith so that God would be glorified in all the opportunities that are in front of you. I gotta keep going because I'm running out of time. If you go back to chapter one, it's not just prayer that's essential. Prayer in faith, prayer that, yes, doesn't just say the right things, but again, desires as your heart and your soul in tune with the right things that comes from above. It has to be also, verse 16 of James chapter one, wisdom that's planted in you from a source. Verse 16, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Where does every good and every perfect gift come from? From God. Again, everything good, anything that you'll have whenever you live in the right way, we need to understand, is that something that we should really look at and be like, hey, great job, I've been really spiritual because I've done this, check, done this, check, done this, check. No, because again, don't be deceived about where that source comes from. If you're truly altered, realize this, that every good and every perfect gift comes from where? And here? Above. See, that's where prayer is so vital because we need to tap into wisdom that is outside of us. Prayer is so vital in that sense, but realize that everything you have comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. And consider this also, guys. If, if God is willing to give you these things, realize that if you're a believer, verse 18, what has come from God ultimately? Well, realize this. Of his own will, he has brought us forth how? How have we been brought forth? By the word of truth. Can I tell you something? What's interesting about the language used here is the one that he's just described as when your own desires conceive, when your own desires bring forth something, it results in sin. Here the language is different. Because what's being planted in you is from God. And yet what comes out is brought forth from God, the source of God within you. It's him doing the work, him transforming you, that what comes out by the will of God, not when you're following your own will. Do you see that? When you're following your own will, sin comes from that. When God works his will in you, what's coming out, what's being brought forth, by the word of truth, by the way, is from God. Because you realize that the will of God being planted and rooted in you, the, the, the wisdom that God plants within us, the source of that is the word of God itself. The importance of prayer, which is tapping into wisdom that comes from above, it's outside of you, but also the wisdom to guide you and what is going to come from you in order to be in accordance with God's will is the very word of God itself. That's what's been rooted within us. And what's brought forth out of that is from the word of truth. It gives birth to something in us, and that's different than what it means to be following our natural desires. God has planted this so that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In other words, guys, the harvest, James is saying here, the, 
the, the evidence of when the crop is planted, when it's water, when it grows, when it actually bears its fruit, and you show that what, what's been rooted in you comes out when the harvest is known, what comes out of you that's been planted by the word of God is a response in the opportunities and trials that you have to the glory of God. This is why God's planted this in you, so that you would be a representative in every opportunity that you have. To bring God glory. This is why he roots in you. This is why he's given us his word. So that you would be rooted in that. And what would be cultivated from that word. Would be alignment to his purposes. And then when you learn according to that word. That's been rooted in you. And this is through the grace of God. This is wisdom that's outside of you. It's a word that's alien to us in a sense. But yet it does a work from within. That shows forth outwardly. When the fruit. Comes out on its limbs. In fact, if you look also at verse 21, he says it again. The charge to put away filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls, is a vital part of this too, isn't it? See, the motivation to put off sin and to respond in purity and devotion to the Lord as we ought doesn't begin within you. It begins with what God plants in us through faith. Through the word of truth, the implanted word he puts within us. And it's that implanted word, when you tap into that word, when you devote yourself to that, that implanted word is able to save your souls. When you're controlled by that word and not your desires, God brings forth the fruit that comes from that. So the motivation to put away filthiness and all the rampant wickedness in whatever way it might be, If you struggle with that, the first thing you have to do, yes, pray for wisdom that rests outside of you, but also receive the implanted word that comes from God. It's alien to you. Turn over to chapter three. Because here's where James makes this contrast abundantly clear. In verse 13. Because this is really where the test of faith faith culminates. This is at the very heart of this little letter that James wrote to believers. How many of you desire to demonstrate that you are rooted in Christ? If you're in Christ, I mean, and, and that's your desire, I know that you would raise your hand if I asked you to. How many of you want to demonstrate that you are tapped into a wisdom that doesn't rest with you, but it's outside of you? How many of you would like to demonstrate the fact that you really are redeemed and that you love Christ and that you're in union to him? How many of you would like to demonstrate that kind of wisdom? Guys, I think that would be all of us if we were honest with ourselves. But who is wise and understanding among you? How is it going to be exhibited? How are we going to be exhibited that we're really connected to Christ and that we've really been transformed? It's going to be manifested outwardly. See, it's by his good conduct, this wise and understanding person, he's able to show his works. But he's able to show his works in such a way that's not like, yeah, I'm pretty awesome. Check out what I just did. I mean, wow, I I really really knocked it out there. I mean, I really blew them away by the way that I was able to 
demonstrate how spiritual I was. No, guys, because again, why would he say that we're demonstrating our good conduct if we really are wise and understanding as we ought to be and we're rooted in this, in, in this that, that James is charging us to? Why does he say let us demonstrate this in the meekness of wisdom? Why is this meek or humble wisdom? Because think about the source. Does it originate with you? It doesn't. Why is wisdom able to be, why are we able to receive that in meekness? Because the very moment that you think it begins with you is the moment that you are dead wrong. (laughs) See, again, we've already seen that wisdom comes from above, from the Father, if we ask him. Wisdom comes from the word being rooted and planted in us. And we receive that word. And what's brought forth out of that is is a different kind of conduct. See, it's by our good conduct. We're showing with humility of wisdom that, that again, if we do anything, it's because God has done this work. And, and we're genuinely humbled. But here's the contrast, verse 14 says. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast and be false to the truth. Just I'm interesting here that the, the contrast to having a heavenly wisdom here, just quite simply, are those that just have selfish ambition. They do all that they do, all their religious outward things, all the outward signs of all that they do. They're doing it because really they're jealous. They don't want to be taught by somebody else's piety. Oh, you get up at 4 a.m., I get up at 3.30 a.m. Yeah. You know, I, wow, I mean, you read um, one chapter out of the Bible, I read 18,000. We're selfishly ambitious. We're jealous. We don't like other people looking more spiritual than we do oftentimes. If this selfish ambition is in our hearts and, and yet what's being bred by that kind of environment is this, this quarreling and fighting that we see between relationships. There's not an authenticity of genuine relationships that have been transformed by divine wisdom. Instead, they're just selfishly motivated religious people that are judging others harshly, and many other things. Don't be false to the truth. Don't act like you're rooted in something that you're really not, James says. Cut it out. See, because verse 15 is very clear. The kind of wisdom that you guys are demonstrating, James is saying to his readers, he says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. But instead, know the source. This is not the wisdom that comes from God, because again, we know what the wisdom that comes from above produces right it's wisdom that's outside of you it's not wisdom that originates out of your own desires giving birth to sin and then death see the wisdom this is not the wisdom that comes down from above but where's the origin of this wisdom that we too often operate on the basis of it is what first and foremost it's say it earthly unspiritual and whoa james you just went a little bit too far right Whoa, demo- no, no, demonic, come on, no, no, no. I'm, I'm just, I mean, I got a little bit of sin, but it's not demonic. No. It's demonic. We need a serious gut check, don't we, when we think about this. In other words, you're acting in exact accordance as the demons do. You're no better than them. When you're conducting yourself out of your selfish ambition, following your own desires, you're no better than Demons. 
You're showing that you're rooted in a wisdom that's following your own desires. That's what demons do. You're, you're earthly. You're of this earth. That's all you really care about and, and seeing your desires gratified there. You're unspiritual. You're not really spiritual even though you maybe appear to be. In fact, you're demonic. And see, he says, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. If we take a serious look at our lives, no matter how much the outward shell appears to be, when we examine it, how's the order of your life going right now? What kind of wisdom are you rooted in? What's controlling you? How about your practices? Are they vile? Corruptible? Do you find that you're often motivated out of your own desires rather than being rooted in a wisdom that would control you in a different way? Because there's a different kind of quality of the wisdom that comes from above. There's a wisdom in the way that that's exhibited. If wisdom has been planted in you, again, get the source. It's not from within us. It's not of this world. It comes from God. And if it's exhibited in you, then there's these qualities that James gets into next. See, the wisdom from above is first, what's the first thing? Purity. It's pure. Unstained. It's amazing that he goes, that the, the first sign of the fact that you're rooted in wisdom from above is that you're pure. How's your purity? Because again, this is the first thing that's assaulted, right? Is often our purity. Compromising in our thoughts, our hearts, our motivations. One of the first things out of the gate when, when we... Um, kind of follow after earthly desires is when the purity of our minds are, are tainted in some way. We, we don't follow purity. The second aspect of wisdom that, that, that's exhibited that comes from above is next, peaceable. Are you a peaceable person? In other words, do you make peace with people or do you make strife with people? If you have wisdom from above, the, the next quality is not only purity that you're devoted to in your life, but you make peace. Gentle. Are you a gentle person? I, th- I always think of this when I, when I think about uh, gentleness. Um, one of my friends out in California when I was uh, out of the church at, at Grace Community, there was a guy who was in children's ministry. He was about 6'4". He had the bench press record at Purdue. Uh, I think it was something like 580 pounds. That was huge. He was enormous. And you would think, man, this is a guy that's just fit for like college ministry, like break college students in half if they get out of line, you know, kind of guy. You know, his name was John Crick. But you know what's amazing about this guy is he wasn't, he wasn't one of these guys that's just getting in and roughing people and putting them in headlocks and yelling out and be a man, you know, that kind of stuff. But he was a children's pastor at Grace. He had kids climbing all over him. He was like a jungle gym. It was awesome to see but it's, it's gentleness is really power under control. The ability to, again, you could crush somebody if you, if you really wanted to, but you don't because you're gentle. I always think of him when I think of the, the term gentleness in, 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 a, in a form of true spirituality. is a gentleness that's associated with your conduct. Are you open to reason? That is when somebody brings you some matter that maybe you aren't responding in a way that would bring glory to God to, are you open to consider it or not? Are you open to reason to consider 
uh, again, the humility of the fact that you realize, look, wisdom is not, doesn't begin and end with me. I, I don't have it all figured out. The open to reason is, is one that, that, that truly lives in line with that wisdom to realize it's not, it's not, it doesn't originate in me, but I, I'm still in need of others to help show me. So you're open to reason. How about this next? Full of mercy and good fruits. Are you a merciful person? The next term with this, just good fruits, or good fruits just coming out of your life. How about this next one? Impartial. Do you look down on certain people? Do you treat everyone in accordance with how they've been made in the image of God? How about this last one? And sincere. Are you a are you a sincere person that when you know you you listen or, to people, are you genuine about your care for them? Are you hypocritical? I mean, do you tell people one thing and then go back and say, mm, yeah? See, because all these qualities demonstrate, and if you're honest about this list, can we just be honest? None of those things originate in us, do they? It's not natural. But verse 18, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Is the harvest, is, is what's being grown and cultivated around your life, this harvest of righteousness, as you are a peacemaker and making peace with those around you. Because the opposite's true as he gets into chapter 4. Quarrels, fights, dissensions, adultery, impurity, all these things are happening because people are being driven by their own desires instead of really being rooted in divine wisdom that comes from outside of them. There's a need for wisdom here. But if you remember as I started, I I asked you the question, how do you count it all joy when you face trials? Well, the joy is this. That if you're looking at your own life and realizing, man, I I can't measure up to any of this. I, I, I don't exhibit this kind of wisdom. That's the best place to start. Because you recognize and need to confess that you need to pray and ask God to give you wisdom that's alien to you. But yet you have to understand where it comes from too. It doesn't come from, um, from anything else but the word of God itself, the word of truth that God intends to have planted deeply within us to know and understand what he said and what his will is. We have the need for endurance to keep steadfastly running. And it's not that we have arrived, as Paul says in Philippians 3, but we press on. And the next time that your faith is tested and the opportunities in front of you to either say something or not do something, any opportunity to spend your time or, or whatever moment of your day, either into the glory of God or not, that if you learn to steadfastly endure those trials, you will be a complete person being rooted in the sufficiency of the wisdom that comes from outside of you. All the while being seriously aware the danger of sin that exists still within you to follow your own way and to not follow God's way. The challenge in front of us is this. James readers, James's readers, weren't doing a good job at passing the test. Here's the question. 
Well, faith community church. Be rooted in the right kind of wisdom from God. And would we pass the test? Would you pass the test? Prayer for those that have been truly recipients of the grace of God, the Father of lights, who gives abundantly to us. Believers here, I charge you to that. Be rooted there. For those that this might be alien to, who are still going to be following their own desires, I encourage you, I exhort you to consider the wisdom that you need that doesn't rest within you to be controlled by your own circumstances and emotions, but to see your need of wisdom that comes only through the gospel of Jesus Christ because this is the only place you'll find it. Believers, you never get beyond that though, do you? Faith is always by grace. It begins by faith. It continues by faith. And all of that because of the grace of God that he's given to us to exhibit these qualities and to truly be worshipers of him, responding in every opportunity and counting it joy, knowing that God is producing greater conformity to his will within us as he does it all. Pray that this has been an encouraging message for you tonight. We're gonna close our time in prayer as we stand together. Lord, I pray that our attitude would truly be that. We count it all joy when we face various trials. Lord, all the many trials and all the many tests that we have in every moment of the day, Father, that we exist, to either spend it for your glory or to spend it following our own desires. Lord, I I pray that you would help us evaluate what kind of wisdom we're really rooted in. And Father, if we have the qualities that aren't really aligned to what brings you glory, Father, would we truly look beyond ourselves through prayer and genuine faith and to your word, Father, to guide us. I pray, Lord, that faith community be a place that we would respond to this message, Father, that James had for his readers and that we as a church, Father, would would truly, in love, encourage each other to continue growing, desiring to see the conduct of our lives be a demonstration of wisdom from above, Father, and not the wisdom that too often characterizes the many churches of our day and especially our culture. Help us, Lord, to be different as we're rooted in your divine grace and truly being humble servants and stewards of this great treasure that you've put within these clay pots. Help us, Lord, to always exhibit this fruit in greater and greater ways, Father, as we strive to keep our focus on Jesus Christ, who has made all of this possible. We ask this, Lord, in accordance with your grace and your lavish goodness to us in the name of Christ.